Moving on. Last week, we went to Matthew 24, Luke 21, primarily, maybe a few other places, and we saw that there are terrible times coming on the earth, and indeed we are in them now because people are dying of earthquakes and famine and pestilence, and it is increasing around the world and increasing even in our country. There's much, much, much that is wrong. I won't go back and review all that. We covered that last week. And the point of that whole exercise was to show not just that things are going to get bad, but to show that for those who will obey God, there is a way to escape it. There is a way out. God has provided opportunity so that we don't have to go through all that is coming. And I tried to emphasize that that is good news because we are a few of those blessed ones who understand that there is a way of escape. There is even a place designed by God ahead of time, prepared for him to take those who are counted worthy to escape. So it isn't gloom and doom for us, is it? All we have to be concerned about is preparing ourselves and being ready so that we will be accounted worthy to escape these horrible things that are coming. God will protect his people in the end time and preserve them through into his millennium. We don't need to worry too much about our little children, our older children, unless they've gotten to the point that they have self-determination and will make up their own minds, and they do reach that age. But if we will do what we're supposed to do, God has provided a way. We need to be sure that we are praying and we are watching these things. And I want to go back to Luke 21 and use it as a jumping-off place in context with what I said last week and go somewhere else with this. He says, when you see these things in verse 28, these horrible things beginning to happen, it's good news because it is a sign that your redemption is near, that God is going to pull you out of this world, redeem you from the trouble and the destruction that is coming. This isn't necessarily talking about salvation per se here. It is redeeming us from the trouble. Salvation comes at the last day on the Feast of Trumpets, picturing the first resurrection when Christ comes to the earth. That's when our spiritual redemption occurs. But the context here is of end-time troubles and being redeemed out of it. Of course, in an overall sense, it goes to the spiritual as well because it is also a time when spiritual redemption and change is also very, very near. So it isn't either or here. It is both. We're talking about physical destruction, and we're talking about physical deliverance and spiritual deliverance. And it is talking here about the events leading up to the return of Christ when the ultimate spiritual uh, redemption will occur. But I think it is important we understand and fully grasp that we will still be in a physical world up until the time that Christ actually returns. 
and that this physical world is going to be in incredible turmoil, war, famine, and pestilence, and that the vast majority of the people walking the earth today are going to be dead very shortly. I'm not going to try to set dates here, but very shortly. Luke himself says that the generation that is alive when this begins to come to pass will not pass away, will not die out until all this is fulfilled in verse 32. Now, we have read many, many scriptures, and I'm going to review a few today, which show that God is going to bless and protect his people in the end time. Now, I did say that there is a place of safety, that we could be accounted worthy. We read that in Matthew 24. So, we know there's opportunity ahead, and that God's blessing and favor will be with those who will obey him. There is a warning here, and I want us to look at it again. I read over it a little bit. I didn't stop and emphasize it greatly last week. But go down to verse 34, if you will. Well, let's see. Let's start in 31 and and pick the context up. So likewise you, when you see these things come to pass, this was written to the church, the end time, us, when you see these things come to pass, know you that the kingdom of God is near at hand. It isn't long. So the things leading up to it and it coming itself isn't far away. Truly I say to you, this generation shall not pass away till all being fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away. I mean, if it were to to happen, if it could, that would pass away before his words would pass away. Now, the heavens and the earth are not going to pass away. That was a false doctrine we learned in Worldwide years ago. The manner of life on the earth is going to, but I can show you very clearly and did in the series on how inclusive is the church, that the earth will not be burned up and charred and recreated. It just is not going to happen. And the scriptures used to show that are not true. Uh, It is going to be reworked. And you can prove that in scripture. I already have. If you haven't heard that series, you really, really need to go back and listen to it and listen to it carefully and follow through in your Bible, because there's much there we never understood in worldwide that is absolutely scriptural. But, so what God is doing here really is swearing that heaven and earth could pass away, but his words cannot. It's just as likely to happen. Now, if the heaven and earth does pass away, that then means that his words could also pass away, doesn't it? And right there in a verse that someone might say proves that heaven and earth will pass away is proof that it won't because what he's saying there is a very positive statement that his words will not pass away. Now, what's he talking about there? He's not talking about the physical heavens, the physical earth. Now that will, I mean, that will not pass away. You can prove that scripture. But this culture, this society, this way of life that Satan and man have established will pass away both in the heavens and in the earth. 
Satan will be cast out of the heavens, never to return. He will be bound to the earth. And everything that he has done, everything that man has done, is going to pass away. All that he has done to the heavens and to man on the earth. I'm not going to go into that any further than that at the moment. It's all in that series, and I think laid out very clearly and provable. Where I want to go, though, is verse 34. And take heed. What does take heed mean? That means look up, look around, wake up. Be very aware. Take heed to yourselves, to the church. Lest at any time your hearts be overcharged, or I don't suppose that's a word we use that much, uh, be charged up maybe we might say in modern English. Let your heart be charged up with partying, or it be overcharged in the sense of going over into a way of thinking in life. Your hearts be overcharged with partying and drunkenness and cares of this life so that they come upon you unaware. Now, to me, this scripture is implying that there will, be, there will come a time where we're anticipating, we're expecting, and yet it doesn't seem to be happening. It seems like it's not there yet. That there's a lull or a delay. And the time is just sort of going on. So people will do what? They'll go to the physical cares of this life. To what people do. They like to have good times. They like to party. They like to drink. They like to enjoy the physical things of life. And what he's saying here is we lose contact with the spiritual and begin to emphasize the physical. That's the overall meaning of this verse. Now, he uses three separate specific examples. There can be others we could plug in here. But what does the world do? They don't see a world tomorrow coming. They don't grasp God so they party on with things that people do on this earth. And it's going to come upon them, and they won't have a clue. It's going to come. They won't expect it. Watch you, therefore. Oh, wait a minute. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. The whole earth is going to be ensnared very shortly, with a new leadership. A new world order is going to come in which the leaders will promise that everything is going to be wonderful. It will be both a civil and a religious leadership, beast and a false prophet. There will be miracles and fire called from heaven and all kinds of things that will indicate to the whole world that everything is going to be wonderful. Now there is enticement of false leadership. Seducing people into believing that they have all the answers, that they came directly from God, and that everything's going to be good, they're going to have 
McMansions and three home garages, or three, <laughs> three car garages. And they'll have perfect health, and medical science and pharmacies are going to solve all their difficulties. We'll have a cure for cancer and diabetes and heart problems. They're going to produce information that's going to seem to the whole world that everything is going to be wonderful. And that they themselves are setting up the kingdom of God on earth. They'll promise them a life of ease and give them slavery. They'll promise them plenty and give them poverty. So they'll turn it around. They'll make all these wonderful promises, and then it'll all be hollow. So he says, a snare is coming to all that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Matthew 24 says that even the very elect would be deceived by this if it were possible. It is going to be so alluring, so powerful, they're going to promise that there'll be no more wars, that we finally found the key to ending war. If we'll all come under the umbrella of this new world government, this United Nations, or whatever they call it at that point, is going to have control of everything, and all nations, and all peoples, so that war can be prevented. We won't have to send our children over to be killed anymore. We won't need defenses and spend all our money on bombs and airplanes and helicopters. They're going to make incredible promises, and believe it or not, it's going to move in that direction because the whole world will join with the beast and go that way, except for a very few. And then the whole world is going to have the rug pulled right out from under them, and all those promises are going to turn nothing. So he says, wake up, be aware, take heed, don't let it come on you like it's going to come on the world, completely unaware. Watch you therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. In other words, He's saying here, don't lose sight of the job God has given you to do. God wants us to be doing something now. Now, we are in a time. After Herbert Armstrong died, it's been what? About 21 years now, nearly, since he died. And things have fallen apart in the church, and it seems like things have just gone kind of on and on, doesn't it? And we've even quit screaming about gun laps now, and we're just waiting to see when this thing happens. He was always talking about we're in the, the gun lap now. We've got to run, run, run till the end. And he'd make us run, and then nothing would happen, and that gun lap would end, and you'd catch your breath, and you'd start the next gun lap. So it was just one gun lap after the next, run as hard as you can all the time. Well, that wasn't all bad in some ways, because it's nothing else. Maybe it helped keep us moving in a spiritual way. But I think we've come to realize that the job is not to preach to the world right now. The job is to prepare the bride to get ourselves ready for the wedding 
so that we might stand when the day of the Son of Man comes, and that we might be a part of that 144,000 who will be the bride of Christ. Out of the 60 billion or so maybe who have lived on the earth, only 144,000 comprise the bride. And we know that we can be a part of that. We can be a bride of this world and its new world order, or we can be a bride of Christ. And a lot of that lies on our shoulders, to be aware and awake and alive and to know who the true bridegroom is and not be seduced by the false one who comes and says, I am Jesus, the Christ. Follow me and we'll have a way of peace here and a thousand years of wonderful life on the earth. That's what they're going to promise. And nearly everyone will follow that way. But there seems a, seems that there will be a time when we'll think that there's a delay. That it isn't going to happen. It's easy to lose our perspective, isn't it? We came out here into this desert several years ago now, and we built a community. It's here. It's established. And now it seems that for two or three or four years there hasn't been a whole lot going on, and that there's a delay, and what are we sitting here for? And it would be easy to let down and begin to lose sight of why we came here in the first place and what we need to be doing and the job that God has given us to do. Because we have a spiritual job to do that is become like Christ. And that is a tall order in itself. And we have a long way to go, don't we? We can witness that by how human we appear to each other and how human we are ourselves. So we have a tall order there. It says don't relax and go about the physical things of this life and forget the spiritual purposes that God has called you to accomplish. I believe he has also given us a physical job to do here on this earth. I think most of the splinter groups or the daughters of Zion, daughters of the church, feel that they have a calling, a purpose of some kind. Many of them think that their job is to go ahead and finish preaching the gospel around the world. A few of them may think that they're here to prepare the bride. A few of them, um, well, let's see, what are some of their goals and purposes? That probably co covers most of them. But some of them have different little nuances. Uh, you might pick one and say, well, it seems that their whole job is to come up with a proper calendar, because that seems to be all they talk about. So maybe they think that's their job. So everybody seems to think that having been called of God, God has a purpose for them. Now, I don't think that is necessarily wrong. We all need to perceive what it is that God would have us be doing, both physically and spiritually, during our period of time on this earth. So, let's live and let live in that sense. I'm not going to stand here and condemn at the moment those who think their job is this, those who think their job is this, or something else. 
because we live in a glass house, don't we? We feel we have a job to do. Now, why are we here? I mean, right here, those of us who are here. Why did we come here? Why aren't we still where we were? Or somewhere else we might have wanted to go? Why are we right here? Are we in danger of losing sight and perspective of why we came here in the first place? I want to go back for a moment to Micah. We've been over these scriptures. We haven't been over them in a while. But I want to review a little bit and help us perhaps review and remember a little bit of what caused us to leave our homes, our jobs, in some cases our families, even our mates, and come out here in this high desert in northern Arizona. Why did we come here? Have we lost sight of that? Some have come. Some of those have left. Why did they come in the first place? What caused them to come to a mindset that they didn't want to be here anymore? Did they lose sight of these scriptures? Or did they just not believe them anymore? Or cut them out of the Bible? Or what? Did they get their eyes on the physical? Did they get the eyes on the problems that we each have? Or of the ministry in particular? Or did they get led off by some way of thinking? that has no goal or purpose necessarily other than to get rid of the ministry <laughs> or whatever their goal or purpose might be. Are you and I in danger of maybe losing our perspective as well and giving up on what we felt at one time very strongly needed to be done? If it's happened to a few, it could happen to the rest of us, I suppose. Micah 4, verse 1 says, well, let's go back to chapter 3, verse 12. I could go through the whole minor prophets in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, but I don't have time today. It says, Zion, for the church, for your sake, be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountains of the house as the high places of the forest. In other words, what do you do with a field? You plow it under. So physical Jerusalem was going to be plowed under. Jeremiah 9.11 says it would become desolate in a den of dragons. Um, that Jerusalem in the Middle East has never been there, has it? So it makes you wonder if it's not talking about something else perhaps. But the church itself, on a spiritual level here, is also inferred because we saw long ago in Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 that Zion and Jerusalem are synonyms for the church in the latter days. So it has both a physical and a spiritual application. And the church, as we look around, has been pretty much plowed under, hasn't it? There's not much left showing. Out of that plowing, somewhere, something has to come up. It has to spring upward from underneath. And there are scriptures in Isaiah that say that will happen. But in the last days, be plowed down. But in the last days, not the millennium now, we're not talking millennial here, we're talking about the last days. 
It shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the eternal shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. That reminds me of the book of Haggai, where it says God will send some leadership at the end, and God will stir people at that time, once those two leaders are in position, to come and build the temple of God. A spiritual temple, perhaps even a physical temple, not of the Jews, but of the people of God. And many nations shall come and say, or many peoples, it should probably read, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Eternal, into the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Eternal from Jerusalem. So some Zion, some Jerusalem here, the word of God is going to go forth from in the latter days, in the last days. Maybe a physical location where the church is, so that they both come together, or it may just be speaking specifically, spiritually, of the church. But these people are going to learn not to war and fight among themselves and make war anymore, in verse 3. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the eternal of hosts has spoken it. The other reference to a man sitting under his vine and fig tree is in Zechariah 4, which is the time that the two witnesses will be building the church of God, building the temple of God. It's not talking about the millennium there. It's talking about before the millennium, and it's talking about before the millennium here. So God is going to have circumstances after Jerusalem, the church, is plowed, in which man will sit under his vine and fig tree. For all people will walk everyone in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever, or from that time forward forevermore. The world is going to walk after their God, but we will walk after our God. In that day, says the Eternal, will I assemble her that halts, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. Those that are halt means bad-legged, can't walk well, stumbling, falling. Uh, the legs aren't supportive and coordinated anymore. Her that is driven out of the church, her that I have afflicted. So we were driven out. I was put out of the church at one point for insisting that the Sabbath be from sunset to sunset, not 6 o'clock to 6 o'clock. So that's my own experience. Some of you have had other experiences. And her that I have afflicted. God said he would spew the church out. And I will make her that limped a remnant, and her that will, was cast far off a strong people. And the eternal shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, or from that time in the last days, forevermore. And you, O watchman of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, and he's going to select one of the daughters out of all these daughters that the church has uh, begotten or has hatched. The watchman of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. It's not talking about the kingdom of God here yet. The first dominion, the first people who will follow God's lead 
and will be given leadership responsibility even before Christ comes. He will have the responsibility when he returns during the millennium, but the first dominion is going to be given to a daughter of Zion. There are many scriptures to back that up. Now notice verse 9, which goes along with Luke 21:34, which we've already read. Now, why do you cry out aloud? Why are you crying out in turmoil, frustration, grief, limping, cast out, afflicted? Why do you cry out? Is there no king in you? Is there no leader? Is your counselor perished? We at one time thought we had strong leadership of God, and I believe we did under Herbert Armstrong. He wasn't scheduled to carry the thing out to the very end, but we all looked to one Pasadena, to one headquarters, basically to one man for guidance and leadership, and in that sense he was our king or our leader, our counselor, and we've come to the point where he's gone, and we cry out because of churches in shambles falling apart. So why? Well, there's no leadership. And God says in Isaiah and other places that there's no man to lead. There's no one that we all look to, is there? Now, some look here, and some look there, and some look somewhere else, but there no is nowhere in the church today, as God said, no man that everyone will look to. It's not there. For pains have taken you as a woman in travail. Our pain, spiritually, is very much akin to childbirth. You ladies know how distressing, painful, and hurtful that is. We men do not. We've observed, but we haven't experienced. Be in pain. He tells us, go ahead, be in pain, and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion. You know, once you're pregnant, the nine months has expired, and it's time to have a baby, it doesn't do a bit of good to say, nope, not going to do this. <laughs> it's going to happen. The pains will start. You don't know when, but when that first one begins to come on, you know then, don't you? There's false labor and there's true labor. And you know. So, it says, don't fight it. Be in pain. There are other scriptures that tell us to go ahead and push. He uses the same analogy several times. Go ahead and push. Give birth. So he says here, be in pain. Go ahead, go through it. And labor to bring forth. Push, they tell a woman in childbirth. Push. And sometimes she says, I've been at this too long. I can't push anymore. I'm too tired. Push anyway. It's a good spiritual analogy. You know, you might have been in the church now 30, 40, 50 years. You get tired of pushing. 
It becomes so hard to push. But at the end, he says, go ahead and push. You know, when the labor pains are six, seven, eight, ten minutes apart when they first start or whatever, you might have a long delay in between. But then as the contractions begin to come more and more often, then suddenly they're only a minute or so apart, and, and then it's like you have to work all the time to get the job finished. He says, go ahead and push like a woman in travail. Now, when it gets to the point that the labor pains seem excruciating and too close together, and you want to back off and rest, just, you know, give me a break here. Can we take ten minutes out? A woman might say, no, they're two minutes apart now. You can't take ten minutes out. It's, it's just got to be. It's going to be. There's nothing you can do about it. You can wish all you want for a break, and you won't get it. Unless it's a break in water or something. All right, when it gets down to that point, what is God's instruction? Is this analogy that hard to see? When you understand that Jerusalem and Zion are the church from Hebrews 12, is it so hard to grasp that this is talking about the church at the end time in the last days? Now, if the millennium were here, we wouldn't be travailing to be in birth. The birth would have already occurred. This whole context is in the time just before that when the pangs are getting closer together. Now, what does he tell us to do? For now... When it's like that, it says, shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the field, and you shall go even to Babylon. There shall you be delivered. Therefore the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Remember what I said in Luke 21 about our redemption is near? Our enemies are still around here in Micah 4. So the physical redemption even redemption from birth in this analogy being used here is of the last days. And it is physical, not just spiritual. You don't physic I mean you don't spiritually leave a city and go dwell in a field. This is speaking of something physical that needs to be done in these last days when we have no king and no counselor and everything seems to have fallen apart. This is direct instruction from God to a church about to give birth. And don't even leave Babylon completely, but get away from the city and go out away from the influence of Babylon. And there are many scriptures, Jeremiah 50 through 52 and Isaiah 47 or 48 and various other places, Revelation 18, that say to get out of Babylon. Well, this is just another of those. But it gives us more instruction here, more specifically what to do, doesn't it? And then it talks about how many peoples will be gathered against you. Let's say, let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion askance, roll our eyes at it and hate it. But then he says that there will come a time then when she will arise and thresh in verse 13. So God says, get out of it. Prepare yourselves, and then I will use you to thresh the world. 
Micah 5, if you go on in the context here, shows that seven, even eight principal men will be used to go out and confront the Assyrian, the New World Order, when it comes into our land. And most of the church is in this land, a land of far distances, as Isaiah 32 or 33 describes it. We're to remain in this land dominated by Babylon, but we're to get out of it as far as we can into what other scriptures say is desert, mountains, and wilderness. Get away from the cities. Do we forget that we read that? Have some forgotten that they read that? Let's go to Zephaniah 1. God starts this book by saying in verse 2, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, says the Eternal. Man, fowl, fishes, he's going to cut it off. <laughs> verse 4, I will stretch out my hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. Speaking specifically here of the church, the priests in the, in the end of verse 4. Those that worship anything but God are going to be cut off. God is going to make an end to this society in its way, and he's going to make an end of that which is bad even within his true church. So he says, the day of the Lord is at hand. It's getting close. God has prepared the feast for the animals. He's bid his guests to come and be destroyed. There's a scripture in, what is it, Isaiah 8, somewhere right in there, where God just invites them, come on, gather yourselves, make your confederacy, make your pact, put it together, get your best men out front, your best warships and airplanes and bombs and everything, and come on, let's, let's choose up here and sit, hash this thing out. He throws down the gauntlet, in other words. That's what he's doing here in Zephaniah 1. And get rid of anyone with strange apparel. That's why he tells us in Isaiah 52 to put on the garments of righteousness. Then he goes on down and talks about a great crashing from the hills in verse 10 and says, How you inhabitants of Maktesh, where all the merchant people are cut down. So it shows that part and parcel with the beginning of the fight that God is going to enjoin with the leaders of this world is a great financial crash. Tie that in with Revelation 18 about this country that has made rich many peoples around the world by our production and our consumerism and how it is all going to come crashing down. They talk about stock market crashes. God uses the same word here. Maktesh was the market area of Jerusalem. All they that bear silver are cut off. But there are people that are set back on their leaves, verse, leaves, verse 12, which meant uh, oarlocks. It it's a rowing term. You have the oars there, and they're in the locks, and you rest the oars there and sit back and relax. Like the woman that wants to sit back and relax giving birth. It's a different analogy. But it's the same message. People will sit back on their oars and think everything is going to be okay. The Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. God doesn't seem to be around. He doesn't seem to be active. Are we in danger in the church of God of getting to the point we take it for granted and we kind of lean back a little bit and relax 
And don't stay stirred up. Is it possible for us, with the knowledge we have, to do that? I'm afraid it is. I'm afraid it is. Therefore, that is because of this attitude, their goods shall become booty, their houses of desolation, they shall also build houses but not inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards but not drink the wine thereof. I meant to get to this one last week and didn't have time because I made a comment that we're not anymore reading this and thinking this is going to happen someday and saying, well, they're going to build all these houses, but they won't live in them. Now, we've been building these McMansions in this country for quite a few years now with easy credit, and anybody could build a house. Anybody could get a mortgage almost, whether they qualified for it or not, whether their income... uh, substantiated it or qualified them, they could get a loan anyway. We built all these fine homes across this land, anywhere you look. I mean, you go through and, man, every city is just exploding with new subdivisions. St. George, Utah, over here, 45 minutes from us, is doing the same thing. They're running out of land to build houses on. They're so busy building houses. Big, fine homes. But, The fulfillment of this is not history or not uh, prophetic anymore. It has happened. All across this land, foreclosures are up. And Arizona, Florida, California, Nevada are leading the charge. And as those states go, so go the rest. Yeah, they've built them. They have them but it says they will not inhabit them. They're going to be kicked out of them. There are other nations that are talking who are holding... See, you get a mortgage from a lender, and he gets his fee out of it. So he'll do anything he can to get you a loan, so he gets his fee. And then those mortgage companies sell that paper to a big bank. And then that big bank wants to make some money on it, so they sell it for a fee to the Chinese or the Germans or someone else. So of all these millions of McMansions we've built in this country, many of them now have their paper, their mortgage held by foreigners. And the American dollar is going down, down, down and becoming less and less of value because it has no value intrinsically anyway. It is only a piece of paper that says, I owe you. And confidence in it is being lost. And some of those foreign countries and their banks are thinking, I guess we better go foreclose on America. Don't think that hasn't entered their thinking. They, the Chinese alone hold over a trillion U.S. dollars. And they read the news. They watch the markets. They see the mortgage industry falling apart and people losing their homes, and they know that that trillion dollars is going to go down in value very rapidly. The only thing that keeps them at this moment, other than maybe God Almighty not making the conditions right, but the only thing that holds them back is they know if they foreclose on America, 
and finish the crash, all the value that they had there goes with it. They could crash our economy overnight, but they know they would lose value, and they're greedy enough that they want to, don't want to do that. They want to try to let us down easy and get as much as they can out of it. But what do desperate people do? When the dollar goes ahead and tanks anyway, there's only one thing left you can do, and that's go get the houses that those mortgages guarantee. So the world will have a legal reason for foreclosing on America. They already will hold the paper to our land and our houses. This is not a far-off prophecy anymore. We are in the very midst of this occurring. They'll plant vineyards but not drink the wine thereof. The agricultural community is going to go in the tank as well. So if housing and agriculture go, what's left? No place to live and no food to eat. That pretty much takes care of it, doesn't it? The great day of the eternal is near. It is near. And haste greatly. Even the voice of the day of the eternal, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. Skipping down to verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the eternal's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. His, God has said in other places, he's jealous of Israel. He called Israel as his people. And then... Physical Israel had to be divorced because of adultery and harlotry. And he made a new covenant with a new bunch of people. And then he saw them headed that direction. And he blew us out of his mouth. Spewed us. And he's looking for a remnant who will not commit physical or spiritual adultery or spiritual or physical drunkenness or physical or spiritual theft, or anything along those lines. He's looking for a people that he can trust as his wife, who will never betray him or go a wrong way. That's what he's looking for. Gold or silver won't be able to deliver them when God goes ahead and takes care of his jealousy by chastening the whole world in the way that he's about to. Only a few will escape. Now, there are those who say, yeah, it's coming down. The only thing you can do is buy gold and silver. That'll save you. You'll be rich when this is all over. They don't understand. Silver and gold physically is not going to save us either. The only thing that can save us is to pray to Almighty God to take heed of ourselves, to become what we ought to be spiritually, to do the job He's given us to do physically, and pray that we will escape all this that is coming. You see, those who say silver and gold will save you when the dollar's no good are assuming that this land is going to survive. But it's not. The prophecies make it very plain, don't they? That a third will die of famine, a third of pestilence, a third of war, and the rest will go into captivity, and most will die there. 
God will only bring a small tithe through to establish the millennium through a small remnant of Israel. And the Gentiles will also be diminished even greater than Israel will be before it's all done. Now, the next thing he says is in chapter 2. Now, when I first started preaching the Minor Prophets back in 1996 and 7, this hadn't happened that we read about here in Zephaniah 1. Now it is upon us. We're in the midst of it. But we read Zephaniah 2, and it says that there's, I, I used to preach, there's going to be a big crash coming, people are going to lose their homes. And there's some instruction here in chapter 2. Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O nation that is not desirable or that is unworthy, but may be given grace. He says, you who don't deserve it, gather yourselves together. Before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the eternal come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. So he's talking to a people that he says need to come out, even though they might not deserve it. Now, isn't it interesting that in Luke 21 and Matthew 24, the talk is of those who don't deserve to be delivered, but pray anyway that you might be accounted worthy. Who of us, let's be honest here, who of us deserves? How many of us could raise our hand and say, I deserve to be protected from all the trouble that is coming on this earth? I'd have to put my hands in my pockets. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have bad attitudes. We all get in funks. We all rest on our oars. Take time off from childbirth, the childbirth process as if it isn't going on. We all think thoughts we shouldn't think. I think we could all, if we're honest, say, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? And then Paul said, thankfully, the Lord Christ. And that's what Luke 21 tells us to do, is look to God, turn to God, don't get sidetracked by all the physical things on this earth, but keep your spiritual focus. Does that mean we shouldn't do physical things? Where shall we start? Bathing? Eating? Sleeping? No, you can't. You're physical. You can't deny the physical. But we cannot give up our spiritual focus either. Does that mean we should never play cards or never party, you know, get together in fellowship? No, it doesn't mean that. What it means is don't just go along through life and lose your spiritual focus. So he tells those, that are in our category, we're Laodiceans, we're spewed from God's mouth, not worthy. He says, gather yourselves together before God's anger come on you. So there's something here that must be done. This is a physical gathering. 
Seek you the eternal, all you meek of the earth, which have worked his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the eternal's anger. Now this combines with Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Pray, work, humble yourselves, get your true spiritual focus right, and maybe God will hide you when his anger comes down. Brethren, it's our only hope. It's our only chance. You and I read Micah 4 about leave the city and come into the field. You and I read Zephaniah 2, which says before this big crash comes, and now we're right entering into it, to gather ourselves together and seek true righteousness, and maybe we'll be hid in the day of the eternal's anger. We read that. We responded to... Well, let me, let me go on here just a moment before I leave uh, Zephaniah. It's about to, to flip on by. But notice chapter 3. It, it talks about all the destruction that's going to come in chapter 2 and so on. But woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. Who was the filthy city? Who was the oppressing city? The church became that. We thought we were spiritually clothed and doing well, that going to the place of safety was as easy as being in the church and listening to the phone call and jumping on a 747 and going to Petra. Or maybe going to Jerusalem and walking to Petra. We thought it was that easy. Boy, were we deluded. Had we ever been seduced? Doesn't mean preaching was wrong, but the full understanding of those scriptures simply wasn't there yet. And we began to look to the physical. We didn't receive the correction. Herbert Armstrong did try to tell us in his last days as a feeble, weak human being, feeble and weak physically, that the church was off the track, that it had to be put back on. And we'd heard that many times, and we didn't heed. And he told the ministry, my work is done. My work of preaching the gospel as he viewed it is done. Get the church ready. And the ministry didn't go to the sheep and try to get them ready most of them tried to go ahead and go on to the world and preach the gospel business as usual. Herbert Armstrong saw a need. He knew that we weren't getting it. He knew we weren't doing what we needed to be doing. And he was too old and too feeble to do anything about it. Besides that, God had already prophesied that that's the way we would become and that he would have to spew us out of his mouth and tear us apart. But he gives us clues here as to what to do so that we find our way out of this mess we're in and that he protects us in the end. Now you, of all the people on the earth, are blessed to understand this. Let me draw an even finer bead on that. And that is that you, listening over the phone today and here in this room, are blessed way beyond 
most of the church of God by the knowledge you have. You really are. Most of the church does not see what needs to be done. There is going to have to be something quite dramatic to occur that is going to stir a remnant of God's people to come together physically in one place. Here in Zephaniah 3, it says, The church went the wrong way. Verse 4, Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They've done violence to the law. So the ministry has not done what it ought to do. doesn't mean that in the end time there's not supposed to be a ministry. It just means that the ministry has gone the wrong way for the most part. But let's go on down. Verse 8, in spite of all this trouble, therefore wait you upon me, says the Eternal, until the day that I rise up to the prey. Now he's already told us in Malachi, I mean in Micah before this, to get, leave the city, go dwell in the field. Chapter 2 of this very book, he tells us, gather ourselves together before this decree of destruction, and the decree of destruction here is the financial destruction just before that in verse chapter 1. Gather yourselves before it happens, and then wait. That's the context. That's the timing here. Until that I rise up to the prey. Now, that tells me also there is a time period in there when things will seem slow. Did not Habakkuk, just before this, say, well, when's all this going to happen? When are you going to deliver us? What's, you know?" And then he says, okay, now I realize I've got to patiently sit on my watch and wait until God does it. After seeing all that God showed Habakkuk, Habakkuk made that conclusion. Maybe I should turn back and read that. It's just a page back. Verse 16, When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. This is scary stuff. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. So I said, all this trouble coming, God gave him knowledge of what would happen in the end time. And he says, I'd rather die than face this. It scared him. He trembled. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. God said that the uh, Assyrian would be his servant. So he says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vine. In other words, there won't be much fruit being produced. There will be a period of time when nothing much is happening. And it will seem like, what do we do? The labor of the olive shall fail. These are spiritual analogies here. You find spiritual analogies about the fig tree, about the vine, by Christ in parables, and in John 15 about the vine. And the olive shall fail, the oil of God, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Seems like nothing is producing spiritually. Yet, I will rejoice in the eternal. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. 
God says there's going to be a period of time when it seems like nothing is happening, nothing is producing, nothing's moving forward, but I'm going to wait because I know God's going to give me the legs of a deer. Now, didn't we read about that in Micah 5, about her that has legs that halt? She stumbles and limps and can't walk properly. God is going to give us everything we need when the time is right. So Habakkuk says, I guess I better just wait and be doing what we need to be doing to take heed. Okay, back to verse 8 of Zephaniah 3. Therefore wait you upon me, says the Eternal, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour out of them my indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. The earth is going to pass away. This society, this culture will pass away. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may call upon the name of the Eternal, to serve Him with one consent. So this thing is going to end up with a pure language. In the millennium, there's going to be one pure language. But even before that, and this is speaking of the time when we're waiting for this to come up, that God is going to give us a pure language. Elijah, at the end, is going to restore all things. We are going to come to understand the truth better than we ever have before. And we will all speak the same thing with one mind, as 1 Corinthians 12 tells us we ought to do, because God is going to provide the answers to the leadership that He has set forth. And we will come to know, and all the people of God are going to speak the same. The spiritual language will be the same. The physical language will be changed in the millennium. But we're all going to speak the same thing even before then. That they may all call upon the name of the Eternal to serve Him with one consent. So we're all going to understand the same. We'll be able to be unified and go to God together with one consent. That isn't happening in the church today. Everybody's going a different direction each leaning to his own understanding and trying to discredit everybody else. But that's going to change. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring my offering. God's going to deliver his people from far away, is what he's saying there. In that day shall you not be ashamed for all your doings, wherein you have transgressed against me, for then I will take away out of the midst of you them that rejoice in their pride, and you shall no more be haughty because of my holy mountain, or in my holy mountain. God has a holy mountain. His church, and he even had as a symbol a holy mountain, Jerusalem. And God is going to take those who are proud out of it, and he's going to leave the meek and the humble. He says in verse 12, I will also leave in the midst of you an afflicted and poor or humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Eternal. So God is going to keep winnowing this thing down. And the proud, the boastful, those who think they're something, are going to be weeded out. And God is going to have for himself an afflicted, humble, meek people. That's what he's after. 
someone who will turn to him with their whole heart. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies. It tells us in Isaiah, our, our sin will be forgiven in one day. He's going to wipe all this that we've done out. And he's going to bless us like we've never been blessed before. But when the proud are gone, the liars will be gone, those who will do things that are iniquitous will be gone, and there won't be a deceitful tongue anywhere. They shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. God is going to bless. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. God is going to turn this thing around for us if we will trust him and be humble and meek and obedient. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. God is going to protect us. He's going to be a wall of fire around us, as we read in Zechariah 2 and in Isaiah 4. Or no, chapter 2, I guess. No, it's Isaiah 4. The King of Israel, even the Eternal, is in the midst of you. You shall not see evil anymore. Zechariah 2 and 3. Or Zechariah 2 echoes that, where he will come and dwell in the midst of us. And that's in the time of the two witnesses and the rebuilding of the church. It isn't in the millennium. He's going to be with us before that. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear you not. Well, if it was the millennium, why would you fear anyway? It's all, it's all done and passed. The context here is when there are still things around that you could fear. And to Zion, let not your hands be slack. Don't lean back on your oars. Don't say, I need a break from this childbirth. Give me ten here. But press forward. Row, work. Don't let your hands be slack. The eternal your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. Remember those fasts of Zechariah 8? He says they'll be turned into feasts of joy. They won't be fast days anymore. They commemorate destruction of the church. Then they will commemorate the resurrection of the church, the remnant. And the glory will be much greater in the latter temple than it was in the former. What God does in this end time is going to make it, what happened in worldwide, seem like a bad dream by comparison. The latter temple will outshine the former temple by far. And God will be in the midst of you. He is mighty. Verse 18, I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly, who are of, who are of you. Now, God is calling a small group to prepare who understand the scriptures we've read today and have acted on them. He sent us here as a preparation crew to prepare a place, to establish something the people, when God wakes them up, can come to. He hasn't started the major gathering yet. The two witnesses are not together on the scene yet. But it is their job to build the latter temple, as we've seen so many times in the book of Haggai, and then it will happen when there are old men that can see what was in worldwide and what will be under them, and that that which comes later far surpasses. So that generation of the church 
will not pass away before these things are finished. There will be yet old men, go back to Ezra, there were people who saw what happened in Jerusalem and they saw the Jews come back from Babylon 70 years later and they were still around to cry and to weep with joy that it had happened. There are many things, brethren, that have happened since we began understanding these scriptures. We read in Zechariah 1 that after 70 years, God would make it possible to get away from Babylon. There was a 70-year captivity originally, and Cyrus helped the people get away from Babylon and go back to build the church after 70 years. Now, it took a while to get the job done. I believe today, as we consider these scriptures, after 70 years, that did occur. About 70 years from the time Herbert Armstrong actually started the church. Now, he began studying in 1926 on the Sabbath or about the Sabbath. And he and his wife kept the Sabbath and then the holy days for a while by themselves. And then more and more people, a few people, began to come around and it began to grow slowly. But for 70 years, that church existed with no opportunity to get away from Babylon. Understand that. We are an Israelite people under a Babylonian government. Washington, D.C. is set up in a Babylonian Masonic fashion. Those people came in. When the pilgrims came over, there were a few Sabbath keepers and Holy Day keepers who did not keep Christmas and Easter and all those things among them. And there was that chance that those Israelites who came back to these shores after a long time away could have been a godly people. But those few who would keep God's law were quickly shouted down and the Masons and the Babylonians took over. And they established this country in an ungodly fashion. So all the time that we have been Here, as America, we have been Israelites ruled over by Babylon. The church began about 1933 in Babylon, and it had no way to escape it. And in fact, its leadership sometimes even went to Babylon to curry Babylon's favor. But God said, After 70 years, Zechariah 1, verse 12, Then the angel of the Eternal answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you have had indignation these 70 years? God was not that pleased with the church. In fact, here it says he was somewhat displeased. Verse 15, I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. God was a little displeased with the way the church was, even under Herbert Armstrong. 
And when the heathen came in, he became sorely displeased. That's the Tkach bunch. Go back and read Ezekiel 15. The parable and the riddle of the trees and the eagles. And God is going, after getting rid of the Tkachs, to pluck a tender branch from the top and start a new tree. Spring up in righteousness. It's going to happen. So here we've been for 70 years in a Babylonian society, and brother, have we been affected, affected, I started to say afflicted, both, by it. We've been part and parcel with it. We've been up to our ears in it. And now God says, come out of her, my people. And he says, come out physically and come out spiritually, both. But he made it possible. We have, I believe, seen a prophecy right here of Zechariah 1 fulfilled. From the time the church started until about 2003, 2004 was always what I said when I was preaching this back in 97 and 98, that we should have some relief from Babylon. The 70 years would be up. What happened? Some of us saw that we needed to go from the cities, come dwell in the field, but we didn't have a field. It says, gather yourselves together before the crash comes. And even back then, we could see trouble mounting financially in the world. So we said, well, we know we need to go over the deserts, the mountains, and we'd also seen that Zion and this area in the southwest was important. We started keeping the feast here in 2000, first year. So we, some of us started moving then, 2001. Let's go out in that area. We know we need to go there. We just don't know where a field is. So we came out. I'd been looking for several years. I'd come out and made several trips out in this area. Colorado, Nevada, Utah, the Four Corners area, New Mexico and Arizona, looking for a place. Couldn't find one. That was at 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001. I made several trips looking for something in the area I knew it had to be. Couldn't find anything. All right, after the feast in 2001, I brought a load of stuff over on my way to the feast in 2001, put it in the storage bin over in Kanab. Some went home, packed up, moved out here right after the feast. Others began to trickle in. So we began to inhabit Canab and a few in St. George and here and there around this area, knowing this was an important area, but not knowing quite what to do. It wasn't time yet. Seventy years had not expired yet. Then, in December of 2002, somebody had found a place in the newspaper at the, during the feast in 2002, sitting right back here. And either during or right after, I think it was right after the feast, said, you ought to look at this. Well, okay, what have I got to lose? I looked at everything else. Might as well look at this too. Sounded like it might work, and it wasn't far from Zion. So I came out and looked, and some people said, oh, they'd already come out and looked. Says, oh, Daryl won't like this. Remember that, Bill? Daryl won't like this. This won't work. Daryl came out and looked looked around a little bit and said, this might work. 
We couldn't find anything we could afford. Couldn't find any terms we could live with. Wasn't the spot, and above all, it wasn't the time. December of 2002, I looked at this place and said, well, you know, it'll be like the old stories. Down payment will be too high. The payments will be too high. It probably won't work. But we'll go look. It's got to happen sometime. Remember I told you, pray about this. I'm going to go talk to the man. And I don't know whether I said it, but in my own mind I thought, well, I'll go shoot the guy in the foot and see what happens. I want this much down payment. It would be my maximum. I think I said 10000 in my mind. Uh, and I wanted uh, 6% interest. And I wanted, I forget now, payments down where we could get them, where we could make them. Uh, the price of the land, the price of the, I don't know, he was asking 3000 I think, an acre in the in the ad. And I said something to myself, well, I'll, I'll see if I can get him down to 27 or something like that. So I go to talk to the guy. And he says, well, yeah, I want to sell this land. He says, the first thing he said was, uh, I advertised for 3000 an acre, but he said, I decided to offer it to you 2700 an acre. That's before I said a word, other than, hi, how are you? I'm Daryl. Decided to offer it to you for 27. Well, my mouth kind of dropped open. Well, I, I, I kind of kept it shut, but it felt like dropping open. Because that was down where I was going to set the level of how high we could go. And then he says, uh, I'll carry the rest myself. He says, but he said, I want 5% interest. Or five and a quarter it was. I want five and a quarter percent interest. And I figured he's going to ask eight or nine or ten because that's what you usually do on bare property. You don't get historically property for less than ten percent interest on undeveloped land. So I was hoping for interest rates were down. I was I was going to negotiate hard for six percent. And without even opening my mouth, he offered us five and a quarter. At that point, I'm going to say, well, I want four. No, he's already way below what I was even going to try to negotiate. And I thought, okay, now the kicker comes. He's going to want 50000 or or 100000 down. 25% is usually a minimum on bare land. This was a $300,000 piece of property, even at 2700 So he says, well, he says, I will want something down. He says, because I don't want you to go in there and buy the place and then leave me high and dry on this contract. Well, no, wait a minute. Before you got to that, there was the other thing. It was the, the monthly payment I was going to be worried about because, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money and some of us weren't even working much yet. <laughs> what can we afford? He says, well, the reason I'm selling this is that my sister has Alzheimer's and I need to take care of her. So he says, I need about 2100 a month. That's all I want to sell this property for is pay for her care. I'm thinking, well, you know. Okay, divide that by the number of families here. That isn't too bad, maybe. Then I'm thinking, well, in that case, all right, now we're going to get to the down payment. He's going to want a lot of money for that. Well, I don't want you to just walk off on me because I need this to take care of my sister. I need something down. I'm just kind of bracing myself, thinking maybe we could go, if we all scratched hard, we might come up with 25000 down. 
And he said, uh, oh, I don't know. He says, how about 5,000? 5,000 on a $300,000 purchase? Brethren, that's not even normally earnest money on that big a purchase. I didn't say another word. I just whipped out my checkbook and started writing a check. I figured after we'd prayed about it, and every, everything was lower than I had even wanted to negotiate. I figured that was God's answer. That was in December of 2002 that we made that deal and finalized it. We worked at it. Some began to move out here in trailers, and we'd gotten it marked out and with steel fence posts. Some of you went through that. Put a fence around it. We went through all that. And by the end of January, or close to the end of January of 2003, we had it all marked out where we could divide it up into lots and begin actually moving onto the property in an organized fashion. January has always been an important time in the end-time work. Herbert Armstrong, he's always going to January. This happened, we divided it up. I think it was the third weekend in January, 2003. Seventy years from the time the church in Babylon began. Right on schedule, we were given opportunity to leave Babylon, to go out into the wilderness, dwell in the field, and begin doing what God had called us to do, and that is to separate out and begin preparing a place for him to bring his remnant. It all happened. Those things I preached about in 97 and 96, 97, and 98 happened. They're history. They're not prophecy. Now, there are those who say, this is just the work of man. It's just coincidence. I don't believe it for a moment. Because the things I saw in Scripture and that God revealed in various ways began to actually come to pass. Does that make me great, brethren? No, it makes God great. The fact that God could take someone who has been as bad over the years as I have been and straighten them out somewhat and use them to begin to do something is incredible. That's the way God works. He took pickers of sycamore fruit who were nothing, followers of cattle who were nothing, tax collectors of all people, fishermen, to do His work. People who were nothing in this life or in this world. Paul, who killed Christians on sight, knocked down and called to lead Christians as a preacher of all things. These things we talked about have come to pass before our very eyes. Things that we read in scriptures and reacted to happened right on time. It is not long now before God is going to do something very dramatic. He's going to call the two witnesses together. 
And something dramatic is going to stir his people around this earth, and they're going to come here. and build his latter temple. Believe it or not. The only fly that could get in that ointment is that we give up and not do our job. Because I will assure you that God has a plan B. If we don't do our part and fulfill the job and the commission he has given us, both spiritually to prepare ourselves and physically to prepare a place for his people, if we don't get it done and get it done right, he has a plan B. But I'm going to assume here that I and you are going to seek God and we're going to get rid of our pride and our vanity and we're going to become humble and we're going to listen and heed and we're going to become the people who will deliver this child to God. He wouldn't have called us here if he hadn't expected us to succeed. We have already seen prophecies fulfilled, I believe, right here. And that stands as a good signification that others will be if we do our part. Wait upon the Lord on your watch. Habakkuk said it. Zephaniah said it. Be ready. Be preparing. Don't give up. And pray that you be accounted worthy to escape and that you be part of that people who helps the rest of God's people when the crunch comes. That's what we're here to do. Get ourselves ready to be servants, to be givers, to be helpers of their joy when they come. We're fasting, but we will be feasting with them. When God opens things up and he says, come and have honey and milk and wine without money, it will be provided. God will take care of us. He will be a wall of fire around us and a covert from the heat. It's coming soon. And I believe it's coming right here with us. Because God called us to do the dirty work and prepare the way. John the Baptist was called to do the dirty work and prepare the way. Of course, he lost his head, didn't he? But he's going to be in the kingdom of God. He made it. None righteous more so than John the Baptist, Christ himself said. If only we could be that righteous. If only we can do the job God has given us to do, brethren. There is so much, so beautiful ahead. Let's not allow our, our personal attitudes, our view of other people's problems and sins, our gossip, our tongues, our pride, our vanity, our egos get in our way of doing the job God has given us to do. Let's see it through. Let's finish it. We set our hand to the plow. We cannot turn back. Any man turn back 
He's in deep and serious trouble. Don't let it happen to us. 